Welcome back to episode four, season two of the Learning Curve podcast at ECSD. We're excited to have you again with us today. Our featured guest today is Ken O'Connor. He is an education consultant renowned for his expertise in student achievement communication, specifically grading and reporting. Ken has crafted influential grading guidelines, refining them over the years, and is widely acknowledged as a leading expert in effective assessment, grading, and reporting practices. Before we begin, let's pause for a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dear God, we seek your wisdom and guidance. Grant us the insight to prioritize the humanity of our students over their grades, fostering an environment where each student feels valued. May the words in this podcast inspire fellow educators, and may we approach our classrooms with empathy and understanding. Bless us with patience and resilience on this journey of nurturing positive learning environments. In the spirit of growth and learning, we offer this prayer. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We also acknowledge that we are recording on the traditional land of Treaty 6, the ancestral territory of the Indigenous peoples. We honor the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 4, and the contributions of Indigenous communities who have cared for this land for generations. With gratitude, we recognize their wisdom and resilience. In unity, we call upon all our communities to engage with the diverse peoples who call this land home. Let us foster an environment where positivity flourishes, where the richness of Indigenous cultures is celebrated, and where reconciliation is achieved through respect, empathy, and collaboration. May our journey be guided by humility, compassion, and a shared commitment to truth and understanding. The agenda for today's episode will begin with Jennifer's Learning Lab, where she will unravel the world of neuroscience, today exploring the power of metacognition. Next, Ken O'Connor will share his insights on assessment practices within an outcomes-based framework. He will speak with us about moderation of standards as we collaborate with colleagues to better understand levels of proficiency and curriculum outcomes. In the Mindset Matters segment, Tracy will lead us through some thoughts on goal setting with students to bring them into the assessment process. And lastly, Allison will guide us through an exploration of the book, The Art of Coaching by Elena Aguilar so that we may consider how we can best support all educators in their work. That's the agenda for today. Let's jump right in. Learning Lab, where we decode the brain's secrets of learning. I'm your host, Jennifer, ready to take you on a synaptic saunter into the incredible world of metacognition. Metacognition, a term derived from the Greek roots meta, meaning beyond, and cognition, meaning thinking, refers to our ability to think about our thinking. It involves understanding how we learn, monitoring our learning progress, and evaluating our strategies for optimal learning outcomes. Why is metacognition so important to the educational landscape? Well, the neuroscience behind metacognition provides valuable insights. Research has shown that teaching students metacognitive skills can have a profound impact on their learning journey. By developing metacognitive awareness, students gain control over their own learning processes and become active participants in their educational experience. So how can educators foster metacognitive skills in the classroom? It starts with teaching students strategies for planning, 
monitoring, and self-assessing their learning. Planning involves setting goals, breaking them down into manageable tasks, and selecting appropriate strategies to achieve these goals. When students learn to plan, they activate their prefrontal cortex, the brain region responsible for executive functioning, like goal setting and decision making. Once the plan is in place, students need to monitor their progress. This involves reflecting on their learning process, identifying obstacles or areas of confusion, and adjusting their strategies accordingly. Monitoring engages the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex, which plays crucial roles in attention, error detection, and self-regulation. Lastly, self-assessment allows students to evaluate their learning outcomes and the effectiveness of their strategies. By encouraging students to reflect on what worked well and what needs improvement, educators stimulate the activation of the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and other memory-related regions, enhancing memory consolidation and retrieval. By incorporating metacognitive processes in the classroom, teachers empower students to become independent, self-regulated learners. Metacognition helps students become aware of their strengths and weaknesses, recognize their own learning preferences, and adapt their approaches accordingly. The neuroscience behind metacognition demonstrates that by teaching students how to plan, monitor, and evaluate their learning, we promote the development of critical thinking skills, self-regulation, and lifelong learning habits. So educators, let's seize the opportunity to cultivate metacognitive skills in our students by providing explicit instruction on metacognition, modeling the process, and offering opportunities for reflection and self-assessment, we can equip our students with the tools they need to become active, engaged learners. With that, dear listeners, let me leave you with one final point to ponder until our next episode. How might you incorporate teaching metacognition into your classroom? Let us know in the comments. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Learning Curve. Today, our guest is Ken O'Connor. He is an independent consultant who specializes in grading and reporting. He's been a a staff development presenter and facilitator in 47 U.S. states, nine provinces, and one territory in Canada, and also in 25 countries outside of North America. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Julia. So to kick off the episode, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what brought you to education? Yes. um, I'm not exactly sure why, but from about the age of 13, uh, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, It was just, in a sense, part of me from all my way, basically, through high school. Uh, Most of my friends, or many of them, had no idea what they wanted to do uh, when they finished high school, although that gradually changed over the years. But you know, pretty much from the beginning of high school, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher. And when I say the beginning of high school, that was in Melbourne, Australia, where I grew up. And in Australia, high school is grade seven to grade 12. So that's why I say age 13. And really, the only issue then became, what did I want to teach? Um, And I had to, my two loves were um, physical education, because I lo- I'm a sports fanatic. I always, I played, you know, several sports each year, and I was really much inspired to love geography by the one of the geography teachers in the high school I went to. So when it came time to go to university, I had to make a choice. And at that time, at the University of Melbourne, phys ed was a two-year diploma course. So you had the advantage that you were out 
teaching, earning money fairly quickly, but you were very limited in where you could go in the system. Uh, and what most of the phys ed teachers did was then complete a arts degree or a science degree um, while they were, were teaching. And that seemed way too much like hard work to me. So I opted for my uh, for geography and did a geography degree. And basically, for almost all of my 23 years in the classroom, that was the subject I taught pretty exclusively. I did teach a little bit of history. Uh, I did teach phys ed, one section of phys ed, one year. But basically, I was a high school geography teacher. Uh, and I taught in Melbourne, Australia for nearly three years. And I had always known that I wanted to travel and spend some time overseas. Uh, and in, in the late 60s, there was a significant shortage of teachers in North America. So school districts were advertising, uh, come and teach in Canada, come and teach in the US. Uh, and the Toronto uh, School Board sent two senior administrators to interview people in Sydney, Melbourne, and Auckland. So I went in for an interview and they offered me a job. So uh, in 1969, I uh, uh, moved to Toronto, uh, ended up teaching in the uh, city of Toronto schools for five years, uh, and then uh, went back to Australia, taught for a year, actually at the high school that I went to. And then my wife and I decided that, and she's Canadian, that we really wanted to live the rest of our life in Canada. So I came back and taught it in Scarborough, the eastern third of Toronto, uh, in the classroom for a number of years and then became uh, the co coordinator for geography and assessment and evaluation. And I served in that role for nearly 10 years. And then I uh, retired from the school district in June of 99. And since then, um, basically a bit over 24 years, I've been working as an independent consultant. So that was a rather long story, but I hope it gives you a sense of uh, my journey to becoming a teacher and um, becoming Canadian. Yeah, it sounds like you've had quite an expansive career and all of those experiences have have brought you to where you are today. And, and the, the knowledge, the depth of knowledge that you're going to share with us today is is such a gift for our school division. So thank you. Thank you. So I'm always interested in um, the these consultant roles uh, that people hold outside of a school division. Can you tell us a bit about what a week in your life as a consultant looks like? Yes. Um, a week in the life looks like, depending on whether um, I'm quote unquote working, uh, presenting, um, but it's basically... Um, a fair bit of time spent preparing for whatever uh, work. And of course, in the last few years, um, most of that has been online. It's now starting to be more in person. So preparing for presentations, uh, if it's in person, traveling, um, presenting. And then I would say the other thing that I try to do um, is, is reading um, because this you know, there's always new ideas. It's very important to, to, to stay on top of that. And so, um, as an example, um, last week, um, I had the good fortune to travel to India. Um, so left on a Tuesday night, arrived, uh, Thursday in Bangalore, um, spent a little bit of time at the school that I was visiting 
uh, on Thursday and Friday, and then uh, Saturday and Sunday was a weekend workshop uh, for teachers in that school, and some comic people came in from another part of India. Um, worked again in the school uh, on Monday, and then flew home. And so, um, and now I'm preparing for working next Monday in Michigan. Um, struggling a little bit with jet lag. Uh, and I mean, obviously, I don't travel internationally every week, but that's just an example of what's happened over the, and will happen over about a 10-day period. But then there can be, you know, long periods where there's no actual presenting. It's just prepare, pre preparing and, and reading, basically. Did that give you a sense of uh, one's life or what one's life can be? Yes, it did. Thanks for, for sharing. With um, having just been in India, and I imagine uh, other countries over the past couple of years, uh, what, are, what are you noticing as general themes in assessment practice that uh, teachers and schools across the world are experiencing right now? I think there's an increasing emphasis, which I'm very pleased to see, on assessment and, and assessment literacy, the, the recognition that um, it, teachers can't just sort of do assessment off the top of their head, that you you have to uh, know what, in a sense, know what you're doing. And sadly, in a lot of cases, teacher preparation doesn't provide a lot on assessment. So a lot of it has to be uh, professional development. And I think the sort of maybe the main theme that I'm seeing is the recognition that what makes a difference for student learning is feedback. And there's a real emphasis on uh, that we have to provide students with feedback. We have to make sure that that is actionable feedback. It's feedback that's useful for students. So I think maybe one way of summing that up is there's an increasing recognition that when we're uh, doing assessment, uh, we need to focus on words, not symbols. Uh, it's the words that are useful. It's words that make a difference um, when we're helping students to uh, understand better, to learn more deeply. Okay? Yeah, that's similar to the initiatives and of in Edmonton Catholic schools, especially with new curriculum implementation. What? So a little bit of history uh, in the Past over the past ten years in Edmonton Catholic schools, we've been shifting towards uh, outcomes-based assessment, or as internationally it, it would be called, uh, standards-based uh, assessment. And in our previous curriculum, we had general outcomes, general standards, and specific standards, and there was so many of them. Some of our curriculum having more than three hundred uh, in mm. in one go to assess. Um, but new curriculum has uh, aligned with standards-based practices. And in kindergarten to grade six, our, our new curriculum, we're seeing a reduction of the learning outcomes. There's about eight to 10 to cover in the year or to go over in the year. And they're not summative until the end of the year. So we're really giving that opportunity for students to show what they know, understand, and can do in relation to the outcome and spending that time in formative assessment and feedback. So for our teachers, uh, we would like to talk about the concept of moderation and how it can support new curriculum implementation. Could you speak to what you understand moderation to be? What I understand moderation to be is, in the simplest way of putting it, is teachers doing shared marking of uh, samples of student assessment evidence. 
um, maybe, you know, in groups of, I don't think it works probably in groups of more than six, but maybe less. Here are, here's Billy's essay. Here's Jane's essay. What do you, how would you score the outs, outcomes? Or what it, let's say there were four outcomes. Um, and then talk about it to get a, a shared understanding. So if we're working with, uh, four levels, um, with proficiency being the really the key level, what we particularly have to develop is a really uh, consistent sense of what what proficiency is in grade three uh, writing or grade two, some standard in math. Um, and so that over time, we will get consistency initially, I think, what we're aiming for is consistency across a school and once we've done a lot of moderation um, in, at the school level, then I think we can broaden it out to being um, ideally eventually across the district. Yeah, thanks for that that description of moderation. So we have uh, a couple schools in our division right now who are looking to work in this world of moderation Um with their teachers. So they have established professional learning communities within their sites and they're, they're giving release time to their teachers, uh, to work in grade level partners. W could you walk us through the steps you would take, uh, if you were a, a principal implementing this initiative for the first time in your school? Well, I think you just described what is the first step and that's that nasty little fall out of word time because th this is generally um, where the problem comes and why it, moderation hasn't been um, used as much as it should be because it takes time. And so I was very pleased to hear you say that, you know, that's that's happening at least in a couple of your schools. So I think the first step is there has to be time um, and it has to be enough time that teachers can really have a rich dialogue. So um, have a set, have the time and then agree uh, on what it is that you're going to to moderate in that uh, thing. So it, it, as I said, it might be a writing sample. I mean, focus on um, the grade level team or whatever it is. Focus on maybe two uh, outcomes or standards uh, in samples of student work and decide what is proficient, how good is good enough. I mean, the, the basic issue here is that ultimately that's what um, assessment is about assessment about, is about how good is good enough and how we define it. And sadly, I think traditionally, we've defined it in terms of either letters or, you know, ABCD or, or numbers, often percentages. And so what we, we need moderation. So the focus is on words to describe what proficient writing in grade six looks like. Um, and it, so it's, I mean, maybe you and I are looking at a writing sample and and you and let's fo we're focusing on one standard and you look at the student writing sample and you think oh that's not really quite proficient and I look at it and I think it's excelling so we then have to say you you say why you think it's approaching proficiency I say why I think it's excelling and then we have that dialogue and hopefully um, maybe we come to the conclusion that it's proficient uh, that I was seeing it as better than it really was, and you were seeing it as not as good. And so we have that dialogue to to get to that shared understanding. And then I think what needs to follow from it is that we also, over time, because it doesn't happen overnight, we also uh, 
develop exemplars from that moderation process. We can have exemplars of all of the if you've only got eight to ten standards um, for over time for for all the standards uh, in a subject. But it's going to that's going to take time. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's uh, dive in a bit deeper to step two. So the the first st- the second step of of deciding what piece of work are we going to moderate. If this is the first time that teachers are interacting in such a capacity to decide what is proficiency and how do we define it in relation to this piece of student work, uh, what are some guiding questions you would ask teachers to engage in that process? I think the first question would be, um, what do we understand by the way that the the, uh, province has defined the levels of proficiency? Let's discuss what is meant by excelling, what's meant by proficient, and so on. So have that very generic overall discussion. And I think that then sets the and it sets the table, if I can use that expression, for then, okay, we've got a, a broad general sense of of the words, but we've sort of developed a deeper understanding of that. Now we apply it to whatever um, pieces of assessment evidence we've we've chosen for the moderation. I mean, basically, the performance standards we use ha- have to have sort of two parts to it. There's the overall, which is those pr- the proficiency scale as provided by the uh, the province. And then what does that mean in the specific uh, assessment tasks, the specific assessment products? Um, so that we, and, and we have to have that overall so that there's something for everybody to work from. I mean, if we don't have that, uh, and I've seen this happen, um, um, teachers develop rubrics on their own. And when you look at the rubric that the grade three teachers developed, excellence is maybe here. And then we look at the rubrics that the grade five teachers developed and excellence is somewhere like near the ceiling. So, um, and I think that probably also uh, which I haven't said before, it should be part of the um, moderation part of the assessment process that we have the the four levels in the proficiency scale and for specific assessment uh, tasks, prompts, um, we should develop rubrics and then we can use those rubrics as the basis for our moderation rather than, but it has to come from that deep understanding of what do we mean by the overall proficiency scale. Mm-hmm. So uh, on our end, as the assessment and reporting team for Edmonton Catholic Schools, uh, alongside our assessment steering committee for the division, we we have compiled those four levels in the proficiency scale with descriptors that have been workshopped by administrators, teachers, and by the assessment team here at Edmonton Catholic Schools. So that would be uh, on our end, for any of our teachers listening and or administrators listening, uh, definitely use our levels of achievement rubric that provides those those baseline descriptions to help um, your discussion as you you work through student work. Absolutely, and you know, as I said, have that real sense of what the in a general way what those levels are. I have a feeling that this came out of Edmonton Catholic many years ago, and and that is just uh, one or two words that capture the four levels. Um, and that's wow uh, for excelling, got it for proficient, almost there for approaching and not yet. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I have 
sort of used that as these are not the things we'd put in official documents, but they sort of capture what the four levels are. And as I said, I have a feeling that that came out of uh, originally my, I heard at first, I think in Edmonton Catholic, probably 25 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is my second year in the role, so I, I, I'm not able to comment on <laughs> who or where that came from, but I, I've heard it with some of our teachers as well. They, mm-hmm. They've uh, used language uh, that's more friendly to students to, to help build that formative journey with them and, and work through those levels in the classroom. Yeah, I think um, and there may be people who, uh, and I have no idea, um, where she is, but there may be people who in Edmund Catholic, but the person that I, my contact person was Brenda Willis. I don't know if that's a name, you know. I'm not familiar, but I'm sure uh, many of our listeners (laughs) would know who she is. Especially the people that have been around for quite a few years. Yes, exactly. Uh, So moderation, um, So one thing that we've been talking to teachers last year about is teacher clarity, establishing learning intentions and success criteria in relation to the learning outcomes that are broken down by the knowledge, understanding and skills and procedures in the new curriculum. Um, And that's been quite beneficial in, in first conceptualizing how we could design assessment tasks that uh, respond to the essence of the learning outcome. How does moderation build on that and support under more deeply understanding these learning outcomes? I think it, it comes by, from confidence. Confidence that the judgments that each teacher is making are um, the most accurate judgments that they can make. I mean, one of the things that I think is critical is that teachers have to recognize, parents need to recognize, especially the age groups, that we're, if we're talking up to grade six, that assessment is a subjective process that it's all human judgment is subjective. Uh, it, it is, it's based on craft knowledge. It's based on, you know, professionalism, but it is uh, subjective judgment. I mean, you sometimes hear people saying that, that they're striving to be objective or, and I, and I think that's, you know, a subjective objective is a false dichotomy. We need to recognize that it is, um, we're making subjective judgments. But the key is we want to make them consistently. We want those judgments to be credible and defensible. And the best way to make them credible and defensible is the pro- through the process that we've just been talking about. It isn't just what Ken thinks or Julia thinks or whoever. It's a collective. And so um, we have greater confidence in the judgments we're making about um, the performance levels on those standards or outcomes. And I think that fits with um, some of the research that's been done, that the number one thing that parents want is consistency. Um, And the only way we get consistency is when there's professional dialogue between teachers. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you're working on uh, currently that you would like to take time to promote or some other areas of your work that teachers or administrators could check out to support them in their schools? Uh, well, the main thing that I was going to mention was the third edition of the repair kit because um, it's relatively new. Um, I I think it, um, it ended up being a, a pretty good book. Um, you know, each of the fixes 
has a description of the fixes in a sense, a discussion of the fixes. And then there's an educator vignette where an educator, some Canadian, some American, some international sort of tells their story about how they've uh, implemented that fix. And then there are policy and procedure examples for each of the fixes. So um, I, I think it, the package is um, really useful and um, um seems to be some agreement because the book's been selling very well, which is nice. Um, really flowing out of that, the other uh, resource that um, product is one that just came out. Um, and I this is the, the Stagger Process Roadmap. It's published by the same pub publisher, First Educational Resources, that is out of Wisconsin. And most of the things like the repair kit are maybe 200, 300 pages, um, which is a lot. And I mean, you don't have to obviously read the whole book, but but this is really the whole process in six pages. Um, and uh, so um, it was a pleasure to, to work on this. Uh, these are sold in packages of 10. Um, so they're really designed to be shared with teachers or with parents or whatever. So um, given that you said something that I'd like to promote, uh, that is something that I would like to promote. Yeah, that sounds like a, a tool I would even be interested in using. Uh, sometimes we, we get overwhelmed with information uh, in education and uh, six pagers seems like something manageable that we could, we could yeah. access. The only problem is that it has to be accessed um, from uh, first educational resources in, in Wisconsin. It's not um, currently um, being distributed from anywhere in Canada. Okay. Well, I'll uh, dig into how we can access that, and I'll, I'll put the link down in the description for the episode as well, if any of our administrators would like access to that resource. Great. Perfect. So a uh, question I ask all of my guests uh, before they leave the episode or leave us for today is quite a large uh, question. So you can take it in whatever direction you your heart desires. Um, the question is, what is a dream that you have for education? The dream I have is that we completely eliminate the use of percentages. Um, I think that they are responsible for uh, a lot of focus on on symbols rather than words. They turn, especially at the high school level, uh, school into a competition uh, for whether you have 96.2 or 96.3. Um, and um, that if we could not use percentages, if we recognize that they um, are not as precise as we, you know, we often think they are, you know, that you know, we can't tell the difference between 89 and 90%, which sometimes is a critical cut point. We can't tell the difference between 49 and 50%, which is often the critical in Canada, the critical cut point for pass-fail. Um, and so they really don't serve any any much useful value, except they make it easier for the universities for post-secondary admission. And I don't think, well, my dream is that, you know, K-12, especially high schools, wouldn't be driven by um, post-secondary admission. We should be doing in K-12 what's developmentally appropriate, what's assessment uh, appropriate, what's evaluation appropriate for within K-12. But unfortunately, especially at the high school level, we're, 
We're driven by university admission and our provincial ministries of education say, okay, uh, our policy is we have percentages and I just wish we could get rid of them. That's quite a quite a big dream, but uh, a noble one. And uh, I would agree with you that we we should be doing what is development developmentally appropriate for our students in the K to twelve system. I'd, I'd like to mention one other dream, and it was actually highlighted this week because there was a um, an, an article that supported it um, in the New York Times, and and that is that we recognize that no assessment should have a hard time limit unless speed is a condition of quality. Uh, that we far, far too often, um, probably starting in the middle of elementary, right through middle and high school, we say this is a 60-minute test. And when 60 minutes comes up, boom, it's over, regardless of whether students have completed it. Uh, and then we say to have extended time, you have to have some, uh, how would I best put it, disability, so that extended time is seen as an accommodation. And I think what we need to recognize is students are different. If speed isn't a condition of quality, any, and I'm thinking now, you know, mostly of, of formal assessments, it, the time allowed should be flexible. I mean, teachers can decide what they think is sort of the, the time that most students will, will need. But then there needs to be flexibility around that. And the um, the rule of thumb that has been sometimes suggested that seems to me to make sense is, okay, my judgment is that this is what students, and I'm thinking now particularly, I guess when I say 60, say 60 minutes of high school, that's the base amount. But there will be at least 20 minutes then available as flex time, recognizing those individual differences. And I don't have it off the top of my head but I will send you the what was an incredibly powerful article about this um, so that you may want to attach it, okay? Yes, I'll for sure attach it. And that's a dream I'm quite hopeful on for Alberta. We already see our government moving in that direction where our, we have standardized tests in grade 6, grade 9, and grade 12, but the time has been doubled for everybody. So you no longer need to have, as you said, a, a disability or a diagnosed disability in learning to, to be able to access extra time. It's provided already to all students. And for Edmonton Catholic Schools in particular, uh, this year we have, um, as a theme from our learning services department, uni universal design for learning. So in which ways can we design our lessons so that it's equitable and accessible to all of our learners? Well, I'm, I'm impressed and pleased to hear that you're using that UDL framework because I think it is a very powerful way um, to develop um, really everything that we're doing. So it truly is for all students, recognizing those individual differences, um, being inclusive. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being on the episode today. Uh, it was an enlightening and uh, thought-provoking conversation with you. I really appreciate your time, Ken. Well, well thank you, Julia. I, 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 I enjoyed it. You, you had a lot of interesting, thought-provoking questions, so thank you. Go 
school setting is a powerful tool that can empower both teachers and students to achieve success. As teachers, it's crucial to set goals for ourselves as well as guide our students in setting their own goals. So where do we begin? Firstly, teachers should focus on setting specific, measurable, attainable, and relevant goals. For example, instead of saying, I want to improve student performance, one might say, I will focus on formative assessment practices in order to provide timely feedback to students to increase their math proficiency by the end of a unit of study. Setting clear and measurable goals helps us create a clear roadmap towards success. Modeling goal setting is equally as important. By sharing our goals and progress with our students, we demonstrate the value of having a growth mindset. When students witness their teachers working towards personal goals, it encourages them to set their own and strive for continuous improvement. Moreover, teachers can create a collaborative goal-setting environment in the classroom. This can be done through regular goal-setting discussions where students have the opportunity to reflect on their progress and set new goals that focus on next steps from where a student is in relation to the learning target. Encourage students to choose goals that challenge them but are still within their reach. By doing so, we foster a growth mindset, emphasizing that effort and perseverance leads to growth and achievement. Another crucial aspect of goal setting is providing students with actionable strategies to achieve their goals. As teachers, we can support students by breaking down their learning goals into smaller, manageable steps. This helps students see the path to success and builds their confidence along the way. By setting mini milestones and celebrating progress, we motivate students to stay committed to their goals. Lastly, it's essential to regularly revisit and assess goals. This allows teachers and students to track progress, identify areas that need adjustment, and celebrate successes. Reflecting on the journey towards achieving goals helps students develop self-awareness, resilience, and a sense of ownership. In conclusion, goal setting for teachers and students is a powerful tool for growth and achievement. By setting and modeling achievable goals, teachers not only lead by example, but also foster a growth mindset within their classroom. Remember to model goal setting, create a collaborative environment, provide actionable strategies, and regularly revisit and assess goals. Goal setting is a fundamental practice that empowers teachers and students alike. As educators, it's crucial for us to set clear and meaningful goals for ourselves and guide our students. Sorry, as educators, it's crucial for us to set clear and meaningful goals for ourselves and guide our students in doing the same. Elena Aguilar's The Art of Coaching, Effective Strategies for School Transformation, is an invaluable resource for teachers, instructional coaches, and educational leaders who seek to foster transformational change within their schools. This comprehensive guide offers a range of practical tools, strategies, and insights that are grounded in Aguilar's years of experience in the field of education. Aguilar begins her book by delving into the concept of coaching and the role it plays in educational reform. She makes a compelling argument for coaching as a powerful tool for school transformation, asserting that it can foster a culture of continuous learning and growth among educators. 
At the core of the book is Aguilar's belief in the power of relationship building as a cornerstone of effective coaching. She emphasizes the importance of empathy, trust, and communication, presenting practical strategies for building and maintaining strong coaching relationships. The Art of Coaching also offers practicality. Aguilar provides a wealth of tools and strategies that coaches and teachers can use immediately, including coaching conversation models, data collection methods, and reflective questions. These resources are designed to help coaches facilitate professional growth and cultivate a culture of ongoing reflection and improvement. Beyond offering instructional strategies, Aguilar also delves into the emotional aspects of coaching addressing the inevitable challenges and resistance that can arise during the process of transformation. Her strategies for overcoming these obstacles are rooted in respect and empathy, reinforcing the book's core philosophy of relationship building. The Art of Coaching, Effective Strategies for School Transformation is a must-read for anyone invested in school transformation. Aguilar's approach to coaching, relationship-driven, practical, holistic, and equity-focused, offers a powerful model for driving meaningful change in schools. Teachers, coaches, and educational leaders will undoubtedly find her insights and strategies instrumental in their professional journeys. As we conclude today's uh, podcast, we extend our deepest gratitude again to Ken O'Connor for his valuable insights and also to you, our listeners. Please stay connected with us on Instagram at ECSD Learning and subscribe for updates on future episodes. We trust that today's episode has inspired you to connect with your colleagues in the practice of moderation of standards and also engage your students in metacognition through goal setting. As you continue on your journey of growth, may you find fulfillment and meaningful connections. Thank you for being a part of the Learning Curve podcast. <laughs>